Well, there was a season of great travel for Jewish people. In fact, they would have their calendars marked for late March, early April. Every Jewish family would long for the opportunity to go to Jerusalem. Jewish law actually required that all men from the age of 13 and up celebrate Passover in Jerusalem if they lived close enough, but they were to celebrate, in fact, three festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Of course, many of them couldn't, and so they would celebrate in their village. This signature feast, the Passover feast, the ceremonies would last about seven days, and it's at this moment where we rejoin our study in the boyhood of Jesus Christ. It's this moment where Luke will give us another snapshot of something that happened to young Jesus. So take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. Luke 2, 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And let me pause. Let me hit the pause button for a moment. This is a sermon all of itself. This one sentence. I could preach a sermon on this alone. You're saying, I know you can't. Please don't. Oh, I won't. But let me at least open the window for you to look through and get another picture of the devotion and piety and love for God evidenced in the lives of Joseph and Mary. You need to understand that according to the law, any Jewish male who lived beyond 15 miles of Jerusalem, outside of that 15-mile perimeter, they were not required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover. It would be a long and expensive journey for them. And you need to know then that Nazareth is 65 miles north of Jerusalem. So Joseph is well outside that 15-mile perimeter that would have required him. So he didn't have to, but he wanted to. He longed to. You also need to know that the law never required a woman to celebrate the feasts in Jerusalem. In fact, in this culture, they would have stayed behind and kept the children and tended the livestock and their garden or their their crops. But it would have been the desire of every godly man and woman to travel to the heart of the nation, the heart of their worship, and enter into the celebration of national life and their national faith. In fact, we know from early historians that every Jew longed to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem at least one time in their lifetime. Now, with all of that in mind, go back to verse 41 again. Now, his parents, that means both Joseph and Mary, went to Jerusalem when? Every year. Every year. At the Feast of Passover. What insight into their dedication and to the worship that they wanted to exhibit to their living God every single year. We don't have to. The law doesn't mandate that we do, but we want to. We long to. We we live for this moment. So Joseph and Mary have taken this expensive, time-consuming, several-day round-trip journey. And this year is especially significant. We're not told clearly that Jesus has not gone with them before, but we are told he's with them this time. It tells us here that he is 12 years of age. Now, he's only a few months away from from full membership into the synagogue. The modern custom would be called the bar mitzvah. The word bar means son. Mitzvah means law or commandment. 
Jesus Christ said to Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. That meant that Simon's dad's name was Jonah. You're thinking he lived a long time. Not, not that Jonah, another Jonah, but that tells us then what his father's name was. So bar mitzvah means you become a son of the law. They would require then the Jewish young man to then keep the law on his own volition and his own desire. According to the Mishnah, which is a commentary on Jewish law, in fact, every aspect of Jewish lives suggested that the fathers should include their sons in the observance of the Passover in Jerusalem perhaps one or two years before they came of age, which would be 13, before they became responsible to keep the law for themselves. Give them the added incentive, the added motivation of living color, flesh and blood being there to watch it happen and to engage in it. So, if this is the first time, we know that Joseph is careful to be a good father and And he's taking him on his 12th year. And here's Jesus then. Normal 12-year-old. He's brimming with curiosity and energy. His eyes are wide as he accompanies Joseph and Mary as they fulfill their, their annual custom of celebrating the atoning work of God through the Passover lamb, which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, leads us again to great irony. They are bringing the eternal deliverer into Jerusalem to celebrate and earlier deliverance from bondage through the Passover lamb. What a moment this is. Mary and Joseph are bringing the final Passover lamb to celebrate the feast of Passover lambs. And of course, no one really fully recognized it. Jerusalem would be packed with pilgrims. More than a million would be stuffed into the city. Merchants have already lined the streets and have set up their booths to sell their wares People will live with what they can buy that day. In fact, the most intense bartering activity will be at the sheep stalls where the Jewish pilgrims barter for sheep to sacrifice at the temple. Joseph, Mary, and young Jesus would have gone perhaps to the stalls to choose their lamb and maybe Joseph let Jesus pick the lamb out. Can you imagine that? The lamb choosing the lamb. I also imagine that there are still shepherds living who'd been keeping the paschal lambs in Bethlehem. That was their job, and they had been alive to hear the angelic announcement that the Savior had been born, and I can only wonder if Joseph paid his shekels and put them in the hands of a shepherd who had been there that night and had no idea this 12-year-old was the one. We know from history that in the first century, more than 240,000 lambs will be slaughtered in this Passover. All 24 divisions of priests will be on duty, not just the one division, which is normal. All 24, they're all going to be needed. They're going to make long rows, and they're going to stand there as the men come with their paschal lambs and uh, slaughter them. They're going to collect, the priests will collect the blood in basins, perhaps of gold or silver, and then they'll douse the base of the great altar with the blood of the lamb. Jesus would have watched his stepfather sling that lamb over his shoulder, and then he and Mary and Uh, And Joseph would have gone away to wherever they had rented accommodation or maybe they were sleeping out in the open. We don't know, but they had prepared then 
uh, for that moment. All the while this is taking place, Levitical choirs are singing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, speaking of their deliverance. And as they gathered this little family, perhaps it was Jesus who asked the ceremonial question, which was customary, why is this night different from every other night? And Joseph would have described to him the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt because of the blood of the land that had been put on their doorposts that night. And they were rescued out of bondage. Well, the night here in this scene would end late. And many people would take to the streets for reunions with friends and acquaintances and family. Still others would wait for the opening of the doors at the Temple Mount to go in at midnight for further worship. And prayer. This and other ceremonies took place for an entire week. Most Jews would come for the significant two day portion of the Passover, which included the meal, not them. In fact, you notice verse 43 and as they were returning after spending the full number of days. In other words, they stayed the entire week. We are not going to miss one moment. And Jesus couldn't get enough either. Look at verse 43, the latter part of it. And the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the minivan. (laughs) That's not what it says, but that's the same idea. Supposed him to be in the caravan. They they thought he was with him. It was the custom of of the the mothers and the children to to go in front in the caravan and the men to to bring up the rear so nobody would be left behind and then they'd gather at night, reunite where they would camp out. Joseph thought Jesus was with Mary and Mary thought Jesus was with Joseph. That night they realized he wasn't with either one of them. Have you ever lost a child? Have you ever been lost? You still have a nervous tick because of it? This is, this is dramatic. And this isn't just any kid. This is the Messiah. Honey, do you know where the Savior of the world is? No, I, I thought you had the Savior of the world. We've lost the Messiah. CBS Online ran a story not too long about a mother forgetting to take her son home after a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. You ever been there? I can understand it. You can lose an elephant in Chuck E. Cheese, all right? What made it all the more dramatic was that it was his birthday party. You know, all the family and all the kids, and they, they, they left in three minivans and didn't realize six-year-old Michael wasn't there among them. Employees found Michael wandering around the restaurant when they closed up at 10 p.m. <laughs> Don't feel sorry for him. He's having a blast. He's got Chuck E. Cheese to himself. She thought he was staying with his grandmother, didn't even know he was missing until the next morning. Now, it's one thing to lose your child and not know it until he gets back. It's another thing to lose your child and know it and not know where he is. That's Mary and Joseph. That's that panic-stricken moment you feel in the mall or where you're supposed to pick them up, and they're not there, and your heart begins to race 130, 40 times a minute. The text tells us here that they go scurrying around to look among relatives and acquaintances, verse 44, and they didn't find them. 
And then it hit them. We left him behind in Jerusalem. They had already traveled one day. It'll take them another day to get back. And they spend most of that day looking for him. Their hearts never stopped beating, panic stricken, fearful that the worst had happened in a city overflowing with more than a million visitors. Now, there are some that think that this whole thing reflects on Joseph and Mary. In fact, look at verse 45. They didn't find him. They returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple. Some, in fact, one commentator went on and on and on about what bad parents they were. And I thought he needs about four kids to change his perspective. I don't think it's that at all. I think Mary and Joseph had perfect confidence that this responsible little boy is is going to be where he's supposed to be. This then leads others to a, a much more destructive conclusion that Jesus disobeyed. And like a little boy, he ran away to join the circus, so to speak. Well, that would contradict the clear record of Scripture. In fact, that would, that would violate the incarnation, the character of the unblemished lamb, wouldn't it? Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without what? Sin. Hebrews 7.26 speaks of him as holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. He has a human nature, but not a sin nature. Peter wrote that our Lord committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. John wrote, and in him is no sin, 1 John 3.5. He didn't die on the cross for his sins. He died there for ours. And because he's unblemished, he can pay the penalty as the final paschal lamb. You see, the point is Jesus is a 12-year-old. And he's a normal 12-year-old. And he gets focused on something and the world goes by him. Nothing sinful in that. I had one father come up to me and he said, this kind of thing happened to me. I was at the mall. I had my two little girls... One on, one on each hand and my son behind me. And I said, now follow me. And he said, yes, daddy, I will. And he walks down this long store corridor and he turns around and his son's not there. Panic. He said, I began to call for him and I began to search for him. And I found him in a little area sitting there watching a television. No thought of what this had done to his dad. The panic and the fear. Is it possible for a 12-year-old to not understand what he's doing to his parents. You did that at least once or twice when you were 12. Think about it. Jesus is fully God, and yet he's fully, here, a 12-year-old boy. The Holy Spirit in this mystery, in concert with Christ's divine nature, will protect him from sinning. But as a normal 12-year-old boy, he's able to fully embrace the human experience and emotion and learning curve, which, which includes making mistakes, stubbing his toe, not thinking through consequences, as 12-year-olds sometimes do not do. Think about it. Let me ask you. Was Jesus ever, as a boy, silly? Now, how am I going to argue with that boy, huh? 
Other than to say, son, you're wrong. Sit still. Listen. I mean, think about it. Did, did he ever, was he ever immature before he became mature? Don't answer that. Did he ever do anything dangerous or was he ever unaware or naive? More on this in our next discussion, but think about it before we get there. Did Jesus ever get a spanking? Or for, you know, modern parents, was he ever given time out? I wasn't invented when I was a kid. Which is a good thing. I would have missed my whole childhood in time out. <laughs> I don't think he's demonstrating anything other than what it means to be 12. But something is happening, and we need to understand it, and I'll show you in a moment. Something's happening to this pre-bar mitzvahed son of God. We have every reason, as I'll show you, to believe that it's during this Passover celebration, at least at this, up to this point, perhaps this week, I believe, there was spiritual revelation provided to Jesus by the Spirit so that by the time Mary and Joseph finally catch up to him, he knew, he knew he wasn't just any 12-year-old boy with a mom and a dad and a little house and a a carpentry business. And let me show you why. We'll work our way through here. Look at the latter part of verse 46. For starters, he's sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking him questions. They're amazed at his understanding and his answers. One author pointed out that the custom of Passover, this is when the Sanhedrin, the teachers, the grand leaders, the august lawyers of liturgy and law, these 70 with the high priest would come out in public and they would openly discuss with whomever wanted to discuss with them matters of liturgy and law, which has led several scholars to believe this is what's happening. He will be seated or standing as a little boy around these leaders, the Abbas, the fathers, and and he's perceptive, He's quick in his thinking. From the age of five to the age of ten, he's been immersed into the law. He's studied the scriptures. He knows now, by now, by the age of twelve, that there are inconsistencies between the law of Moses and the way we're living. And now, as a twelve-year-old will do, he'll say, why are we doing that? Why are we thinking? Why, why do we go there? Who told us we had to do that? Why do we believe this and then act that way? He wasn't faking anything here. He wasn't demonstrating omniscience. Those attributes will be demonstrated when he's older. He has legitimate questions, but he has a quick, well-studied mind. And his perspective in this scene is unique. Luke says they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You could render that they admired his insight and wisdom. In other words, Jesus is wise beyond his years. So what you have here in this scene is a sinless, intelligent, well-studied, perceptive, and what set him apart was a uniquely 
illuminated by revelation from God the Father, 12-year-old boy. And, and right in the middle of this discussion with this august group of men, Mary and Joseph finally catch up to him. They've looked everywhere. Look at verse 48. When they saw him, they were shocked. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Look, behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. I love this. Thank God he put this part in. She is a normal mother. Normal. Never mind that Jesus is surrounded by the highest ranking officials in the nation. Never mind he's, held, he's holding them spellbound. Never mind any of that. Mary, Mary says, what in the world are you doing? Get over here. What are you thinking? What you have put your father and I through? Oh, wait till I get you back to Nazareth. That's the idea. Very normal. In fact, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mary did not have a halo around her head and with perfect composure say, Oh, there you are, son, where we expected you in the temple. When you finish your Q&A session, we'll go home. <laughs> we would have done the same thing. They'd lost their son in who knows where. Back in the city, spilling over with people. For three days, they haven't slept or eaten a bite. Now, get ready for the very first recorded words of Jesus in Scripture. Back up to verse 48 where Mary rebukes him saying, Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in, in my father's house? Literally, didn't you know that, that I would be involved in the things of my father? He knows. He knows now. One author illustrated the growth of his understanding would be like the glowing rays of sunrise that spill out at the dawning of the day, little bit by little bit. And here, at Passover, what a perfect time. In the city of his father David, what a perfect time and place. God the Father revealed to him that he was God the Son. We're not given any data or detail. All we know is that he says something he's never said to them before, and that is, I've got to be involved in things related to my father. In this first recorded little speech of the Lord, he literally blows everybody's minds with this personally possessive reference to God as my father. He didn't get that out of the Old Testament. That was given to him by revelation. That, that would be unique. Nobody talked like this. God as Father only appears 14 times in the entire Old Testament. And never in relation from the lips of anybody as he's my Father. My shepherd, yes. My God, yes. Not my Father, Nobody said that. But he is now, at this moment, conscious of his person. He's conscious of his relationship to his father. And he is conscious of his mission. 
And, and they, they're confused. Look at verse 50. They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he, he innocently says, I, why are you looking for me? You could render that, I thought you knew this already. That's the idea. You of all people should have seen this coming. Which means he had not said anything like this before. Mary and Joseph are confused. Don't, don't overlook that. The beauty of their testimony is, is seen here as we look at it with, with, with reality. They have been to some degree confused since the very beginning. Think about it. The angel, they, they, don't, they, don't, they didn't have the gospels as they're writing to Jerusalem. If they rode. They didn't have the epistles to explain the incarnation. The Trinity would be a mystery. The Holy Spirit, that title, that phrase only appeared three times in all of the Old Testament. And none of them very descriptive or explanatory. So, so here you have an angel coming to Joseph saying... Go ahead and take Mary to be your wife. The child conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Thanks, that really explains everything. I understand now. Comes to Mary. You're going to have a baby. How can that be? I've never known a man. Here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Who is that? And now... Shocking as it would be to their Jewish ears in the Old Covenant, Jesus says he's in the temple involved in the things of my Father. You know what this tells us? It tells us that Mary and Joseph were obedient to God in spite of being, for the most part, in the dark. How unlike me, I, I want two answers before I take the next step. If, this, if it's your will, it's clear. If it's not your will, it's confusing. They're going to remain confused, by the way, all the way up to and through most of his ministry. In fact, at one point in time, his later born brothers and sisters, half-brothers and half-sisters to Mary and Joseph are going to come in Mark chapter 3, records for us. They're going to come to take him away because they think he's lost his mind until the resurrection of Christ from the grave. And one of his half-brothers writes a wonderful little book called James. Now some would say that there's no way a 12-year-old could grasp his mission in life. Uh, there's no way for a young boy like this to formulate a personal identity and mission. Anybody who thinks that needs to read a few more biographies of just normal us. People like us that God has used. You ought to read a biography every once in a while. It'll be an encouragement to you. In fact, I was given a book, and I've been plowing through it little by little. It's a book of on this day in history, and then it'll take you to some historical moment. Well, this month, a man I'd never heard of before named Alan Gardner. If you come from an Episcopalian background, you've probably heard of him. He was a, he's a rather famous missionary in the 1800s used by Christ to deliver the gospel to South America, even though he spent most of his time on the run for his life. Well, let me read to you what happened 200 years ago. One night in December, December 5th, Mrs. Gardner entered her little boy's bedroom and found him sleeping on the cold, hard floor. She woke him up to put him in his bed. 
he protested that this is what he did on purpose. And he informed his mother that one day, he said, I am going to travel the world and I need to begin getting used to hardship. He was six. He did spend his life traveling throughout South America, distributing Bibles, throughout Chile, Argentina, Bolivia. On one occasion, he trekked a thousand miles overland from Buenos Aires to Santiago, distributing the Word of God. Few converts. No church plants I read of. His late 50s, he and his missionary teammates will die of starvation in a little boat, anchored away from the shore. Indians have kept them there. They spread their rations out before the supply ship can come. They die in his 50s. He's found lying beside his boat on shore with his journal in his hand, and he's entered these last words, which is a prayer to God. Quote, Let not this mission fail. I beg thee to raise up others and to send forth laborers into this harvest. Let it be seen for the manifestation of thy glory and grace that nothing is too hard for thee. His death would do for the 1800s what Jim Elliot's death did in the 1900s. Eight missionaries would step forward to follow his tracks. They would land where he died. They'd have a worship service on the sand, and seven of them would be killed in that service. More missionaries would come. People whose hearts burned in them to suffer hardship. And it probably began early. Today, throughout these countries, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. For him, it began at age six. Jesus Christ was 12. And at 12, he spoke with unbelievable determination. Go back, look. Did you not know that I had to be, I must be, about my father's affairs or business, the things of my father? He'll he'll talk like this throughout his ministry. He will say, I must preach the kingdom of God, Luke 4, 43. I must go through Samaria. There'll be a woman there waiting for him, or will come to him at the well. He knew that. The son of man must suffer, Luke 9, 22. Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree today. I must go to your house, Luke 10, 5. I have other sheep. I must bring them also. John 10, 16. The Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, he preached in John 3. But but Jesus, your Father and I have been looking all over for you. And in his gracious but mild rebuke, Jesus responded to her complaint by effectively saying, Joseph is not my father. I know now who my father is. And knowing that means for the rest of my life I'm going to be occupied with thinking about the things of my father. Now after all of that, you would never imagine reading verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. You would expect to read 
they continued in subjection to him. Or, or maybe you'd, you'd expect to read a verse like, and Jesus moved into the temple and became the youngest priest in the history of Israel. I mean, that's what you expect. Not, he went back to Nazareth and remained under their parental authority with obedience. See, knowing who he was didn't create pride or a condescending air toward his peasant parents. The dawning of the truth in his heart and his mind did not make him less obedient. It profoundly highlighted his obedience. The tense of the verbs in verse 51 indicate Jesus continually responded to the authority of his parents. Listen, because we belong to God through faith and his unique son, it ought to profoundly mark our relationships with humility and deference and grace because the truth has dawned in our own minds and hearts that God, by faith in Christ, is our Father. We should be better spouses. We should be more honest employees. We should be more diligent students. We should be more obedient children. We should be more gracious people. See, in other words, his earthly relationships will bear the fruit of his primary relationship. He is the unique son of God. And he becomes a model for us who are also the children of God. Our earthly relationships should bear the fruit of that truth dawning in our hearts that we happen to have a relationship with our father as sons and daughters. Who we belong to should affect everything that belongs to us. And when it doesn't, we know it, don't we? And it bothers us to see how far from the model we can muddle through. But the model remains and his life is set. I'm often reminded of what a Christian leader, an older man, once told me. He said, the Christian life is not a lot of decisions. It's only one. And that decision, that one decision is, I will live my life for the glory of God. No matter when no matter where, no matter what. One decision with ongoing determination. One decision with daily application a thousand different ways. And here in the temple, you have this life-altering scene. Young Jesus makes a profound discovery by virtue of the Spirit's illumination and the godly decision that comes out of his mouth, I must give my life to the glory and pleasure of my Father. And what does that mean for him? Go back to Nazareth and obey your parents. That means chores. That means homework. That means growth spurts. That means temptation. That means difficulty in waiting, learning, growing. It's one decision. He'll have ongoing determination. He's not going to appear for another 18 years. We have not one shred of revelation about what happened. 
But when he appeared, he was the unblemished lamb of God who was now capable, ready, and available to take away the sin of the world. Perhaps for us, we can make a fresh commitment to the model. You might be 6, 16, 26, 46, 76. Just one decision with daily application. I will devote myself to the things that would please the Father, even in chores, even in homework, even in relationships, in everything. No matter when, no matter where, no matter what.